Come join the conversation The show that you've been wanting Keep it real with no filter Weekly we share discussions WWSD Interviewing creative guests Talking the creative process And sharing all the influences From TV and film Emmy nominated and winning Yeah they coming through Actors and comedians too Directors and writers Way more than a few Masters of their craft Yes Tune in You gotta see This the podcast that you need WWSD Welcome to the WWSD Podcast. Weekly, we share discussions with interesting and creative people. We are sponsored by Collector's Maze. You can check them out at collectorsmaze.com for all things related to fandom. I'm your host, Seamus, and as always, I'm joined with my buddy and co-host, Josh. How's it going, Josh? It's going pretty well. I'm I'm really excited for tonight, Seamus. It's awesome. Me too, man. Tonight, we have a very special guest, Kevin O'Dunn. Kevin has lived quite an interesting life. He worked uh, in radio and broadcasting for 20 plus years after having a career in the Coast Guard. Currently, he helps run an Ayurvedic Lifestyle Center in Ocala, Florida. I'm also like 95% sure he's my dad. Yeah, I don't see the resemblance. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody nobody else would talk to me. I was a lonesome kid because, you know, I had these these marks all over me from people touching me with 10-foot poles. It was terrible. (laughs) That That was from your parents beating you. Sorry. You want to talk about that shit? Oh, no, yeah. Let's do that. that. Not really. Yeah, people love to hear about that kind of crap. Yeah, let's talk about <laughs> how, your, how your mother had borderline personality disorder. Borderline? How, how much no, fun no, that she was. was. No, she was, she was way south of that border, bro. <laughs> she was out of her freaking mind. She, I mean, really, I don't want to speak, speak ill of the dead, but what a cunt. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, that I said that. <laughs> let's uh, yeah. let's get this back, somewhat back on track. But uh, oh yeah, yeah, I know you've led such an interesting life uh, between being in the Coast Guard, doing radio, doing all the ads and stuff like that. Where, where does like your origin story kind of start? I was raised by Irish wolves in the Everglades. <laughs> I, my family were total peasants, man. I mean, they were just total peasants, and I was always the smartest guy in the room, and that's pretty sad. When I'm the smartest guy, <laughs> and they, uh, my dad was like really threatened by kids, not not so much my older brother, but for uh, for some reason I did a really consistent job of pissing him off, and I have no idea how I did it. Well, you're you're probably pretty annoying. <laughs> I, I don't know, man. I, you're fuck ugly. <laughs> yeah, you know, they 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 wanted you know they 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 had they had big plans for their you know their middle son to be an actor and like you know make a lot of money and you know then you popped out and you're like what the fuck are we gonna do with this guy? I was a hundred percent more about adventure than money. I've never yeah. been big on money. I know. I mean, I've never I've never wanted for anything. I've always had money, but it's not like I it was a goal of mine. I got I went to. School I got myself into a Catholic high school. It was a college prep school. And I had no right to be there, but I gave them a marching band. I came from a public school in my sophomore year. and my junior year, I came in as a drum major and I gave them a marching band. And that's the only thing I really needed to do. All right. And, and, and you, uh, something you left out is that you, you paid for that all yourself, the, yeah. the, the private school. Like what, what, what made you want to leave um, the regular high school? Opening a new high school and everybody was going to go to that high school. But at the new high school, I just didn't want any part of it. It was, it was in the wrong part of town for me. It was like way out west. It was like not a lot of stuff around it. Where uh, my high school was, same neighborhood as, uh, as, as, the, other, as uh, the Catholic school. And I was just really comfortable there. I had a job there. I had a job in that neighborhood. And my job was really good. I was making a lot of money at that job. That's why money really, I don't think, ever made, made any sense to me. Because I always had it. You were you were running close for the Jewish mafia. Uh, yeah. Oh no, no. Let's let's put this in perspective. <laughs> I was taking a 27 inch television box from Hollywood, Florida, to Fourth Street and North Miami Avenue, and dropping it off, and then picking up another 27 inch color television box and driving it back up to Hollywood, Florida. When I left, they would give me 50 bucks, and when I left down in, uh, at the Comet District. They gave me another 50 bucks. I did that three times a week. If you do the math, I was making 300 bucks a week plus the 29 or $30 I was making at my job a week in 1971, 1970, 71, and 72. That was huge money. That's more money my dad was making. So I could afford to pay for that school. But the thing that pissed me off about the school 
is they still constantly tried to contact my parents about whatever was going on there. And I kept telling them, you're, you're like, you're like, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm paying this year. Like, yeah, this, right. I'm, like I'm, I'm in charge. College. I'm in college guys. You don't talk to my parents. We, 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 you're not emancipated. It's like, you know, and when you get hot talking to a monk, <laughs> you know, I was really, I was really kind to these guys, man, but I, I didn't need my parents knowing what was going on over there. So I did though, recruit my dad as a chaperone a lot. And he was actually kind enough to do that. And that was cool. And he got along well with everybody. And, you know, he was a real gregarious guy and everybody liked him. So it was cool. And my mom, and my mom, you know, at that point, that happened. Then she, she knew she had a status symbol and she was just like really rubbing it in everybody's faces because they lived in a part of, you know, they, nobody went to that school from where I was living, but it was really good. It really helped me out. But within, God, I graduated like uh, on, on May 16th or something like that. I, I turned 18 on May 8th by June 2nd or something. I was working on the Seaboard Coastline Railroad. I was working as a brakeman. And then I went out on the road and I was working on the road. And at that point, I was making about, I don't know, $1,000 a month, then $1,500 a month because I was out so much. I was getting time and a half and double time and all that other stuff. And so I was making big piles of cash then too. But the railroad was a pretty cool place to be, but it was also dangerous. And working like that, I burned out pretty bad. So I only worked there for about uh, 29 months or something like that. And then I took all that big pile of cash and I bought some money. I mean, I bought some land with the money and got a truck and went to Broward Community College to study music. And director of the department was a PhD and he landed the gig of directing the Flying Dutchman in Miami at the opera. And I played an audition and I got a chance to sit there. They were using horns because they'd been you know, the biking the stages for the opera it just started happening. And he brought in tubas where well, there were three of us and the other two tubas were like in their fifties, pro guys, union guys, and amazing tuba players. They let me play. They were just kind of calling it in, man. They let me have all, all I wanted. And so I was playing like the first part for that. That was pretty cool. That's awesome. I was still living at home at the time. And I, I came home and I, I learned when I was younger that if there was a beautiful girl sitting in my living room. She was a cousin from either Ireland or some trashy town in Ohio. And <laughs> I came home and there's this beautiful woman sitting in the, and she was young and she's sitting in the living room. And I started talking to her like she was a cousin. It was an awkward conversation because she couldn't quite place what was going on because I was talking in a familiar voice. And uh, it turns out she was my brother Keith's band director and she was into opera. And I hadn't gotten that job yet. It was because of her influence or help that I was able to get that, that audition right. Well, she was the one who found out that the United States Marine Corps band was going around the country auditioning. And it was part of the, the, the bicentennial thing. So everybody was going out and doing stuff. And it was just a lot of noise, a lot, a lot of movement. And so I worked on this, uh, on this audition. And the, and the audition was pretty good because the band director I had, Bill Lawson, he was a big band trumpet player, but he could play anything. And he was my junior high school band director and go from the seventh grade band into the main band. If you could play stars and stripes piccolo solo after writing it down into you or transposing it right into your own key. And I was going from treble to bass to get that piccolo in. And then you had to turn that in and then play this thing as a solo. You got to go into the upper band. So I hadn't heard anybody else do that. So that's what I did. I, I started with that and I got the oldest woman I could find to be my accompanist. She was just, oh man, she was like bent over and she crutch, but she ripped, she could just rip. But there was like a thing where she came out and, and got in position. And then I came out with a sousaphone because, you know, it was the Marine Corps. John Philip Sousa invented the sousaphone and that was his band. And I played it. Man, I got really good juries. It was really, really good. It was real, real nice. I did fine. But they weren't looking for tuba players. The Marine Corps doesn't have to recruit a tuba player. They're every tuba player who wants to be a tuba player in a military band is going to try to get in the Marine Corps because it's John Philip Sousa's band. So she found that the Coast Guard was auditioning. So I just reprised it and I got a delayed enlistment out of it. But seven months later, I went in. And I played tuba for a year. 
the Coast Guard Academy has a really fine music department and they have really okay. fine musicians. But the the band I was in that was also filled in with recruits got a lot of gigs on the the Bark Eagle. It's not a cutter, it's a bark. It's a war prize from World War II and the Coast Guard got it. <laughs> and it, it's pretty damn nice. I also got a chance to play with this band called the the Air Force Band of the East, which is a, just a blowing jazz band. There was an E7. He was a sergeant, one of the higher sergeants. That guy would always find some place that would let him bring his band in after we got finished doing whatever official shit we had to do. And we would sit in with him too. And they always had really great sheet music because they weren't the Coast Guard. We were playing stuff that was in <laughs> public domain, man. <laughs> and they, they had first run stuff. I just remember one night, man, we were in Birmingham, Alabama, and there was this guitar player on stage, and he was the only guy there for the whole night. And he's just just playing all this beautiful music, man. Just ripping on this. It's like it's like BB King, you know, kind of stuff, you know, and, mm. and, uh, and Buddy Guy kind of stuff. He saw us all coming in, and he wondered what was going on. There were there were people off the street in there, but then the word started getting out, and then pretty place the place, and it was it was disheveled. I mean, this place was like a moment away from caving in. It was a huge old antebellum theater, like a John Wilkes Booth kind of theater. And God, it was gorgeous, but it was way past its prime. We all got on on there. And then, and then this guy, this guy was like, he was hanging with us the whole time. There were nine of us. And then there was like uh, 14 of them. I mean, that's a pretty big band. And it got to the point where, you know, they, the trumpet players started breaking up and going in different parts of the building and playing their parts. It was just crazy stuff. Crazy stuff, man. That was so cool. But I, I you know, I had to be around the uh, the United States military band, which was contributed to by all the military. And boy, they were they were just incredible. But then it started getting stale because it wasn't the bicentennial anymore, and we were pushing recruits all the time. And and it was so much shit going on. And I had already earned my right to go just about anywhere I wanted to, and so I ended up down in Puerto Rico. But I was a second class petty officer as a musician. And I had to bust a steaming to transfer out because nobody's going to let us, you know, a musician do anything meaningful. So it took me a little while to get back up, but I ended up a second class again before I got out. So what's the, what's that like actually being in like a military band? Cause like that, that's pretty unique. I don't know many people that have been in military bands. I mean, I know lots of military guys, but the actual band itself. It's cool because you rehearse for a really long time. You rehearse for like four hours a day. Oh, wow. You get to sit in rehearsal for four hours a fucking day, man. That's your day. I mean, we were dealing with recruits, so we were, you know, we had other stuff to do. But yeah, and 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 I've always loved rehearsal more than actual performance because that's where all the magic happens. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, and and there's a Coast Guard, well, not only longer, but but there was a Coast Guard reservist from Boston who taught at Berkeley. He taught at Berkeley, man, and he was also affiliated with uh, University of Massachusetts and all this kind of stuff. And he would come down, and he was the most wonderful with all the analogies to try to get people to do what they want. And I remember I was a permanent duty, low brass tuba player. I was also the mechanic or the instruments. And I had two other tubas with me, and they were both pretty good tuba players from high school. And we were playing the Fledemus, which is the flying mouse. And he was going, gentlemen, I would like it to sound not boom, 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 but like a drop of water. Boy, boy. <laughs> it was just so cool. It was so cool. When you were in the Coast Guard, did they give you shit because you're a musician? Like, they're like, oh, this guy's a, like a musician, like fuck him kind of thing? No. I mean, I, you know how gnarly I look now? You should have seen me when I was 20. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I get on an elevator, everybody hit every floor just because I was standing next to him. You were that, you were that dude, huh? I, I, but I, but I'm not that dude, but I was that dude. Yeah. Yeah. I just imagine you look like Seamus and I don't see it. <laughs> I would, I would, I would be very attractive if I was a hundred pounds lighter, I think. <laughs> and, uh, and had some muscles and maybe, you know, if I was a military shape, who knows? The thing is, it's not the military shape that makes you a cock. It's the fucking stuff you get to do, man. Yeah. It's the shit you get to do. And how long were you actually in the Coast Guard for? I was in for six years, but I was in a non-reserve recall status for about 18 months of that. 
you said you were only in the the actual bando for for a year. So the other five years of the Coast Guard, you were, uh, what were you like? Were you what were you doing? I was on the United States Coast Guard cutter Sagebrush, the only medium endurance cutter in the entire Caribbean theater. And the captain in charge of the entire Caribbean theater was aboard. That was our skipper. And uh, my boat was being run by a guy named Howard W. Tani, who had taught at the war college. He was a heavy duty guy. He was a really mild mannered guy, you know, really efficient. His officers were really, really tight. They were real good guys. I mean, they were not, you know, not sociably good guys, but they were really good officers. <laughs> He was really cool about not, not messing with the crew. The crew had great morale because we weren't ever messed with because we were, you know, because we were out there chasing smugglers at night and then working buoys in the daytime and building bridges and all this other shit for people. He was, he was just one of those guys live and let live. And it, it turned out, uh, turned out pretty cool. You know, it was a good time. And boy, we had talk about swagger. We, we'd wake up in the morning and be like, okay, we're either going to save somebody's ass or we're going to ruin somebody's day and, or their life even, you know, because if we catch, you know, caught somebody, we, we, we busted this one boat. It had 227 tons of leaf marijuana on it. Jesus. I, 227 tons, man. I mean, you know, that doesn't fucking weed. <laughs> you know, you know what? It all started falling apart. First cocaine got in, started coming in around nine, uh, 80, 82. I was out of everything by then. I was out of like dealing with, you know, smugglers but th- it, things got sour i was on a dock in south america and they were loading they were loading boats down there and it was there was one ak-47 on the whole dock and that was just in case a puma came out of the woods that was a whole thing it was a steep kind of hill and it was a tidal a tidal stream and you could get a like a 300 foot freighter up in there that's a big boat it's not big when you see them next to other boats, but they're, that's a big boat. And it was that they were, you know, they were the ones that had the bass and they would swing the things over in the baskets. And it, there were all these decks and the decks had, had holes, like caps on them. And they would go in and they would load and then they put the cap on it and they'd load and they put the cap on it and they'd load. But they would load for the tide when the tide was down and the boat was leaning over. Then the tide would come up everybody would go rest and then it would come down and it would shift everything. And there were all these kids from South America, from like Bogota or Bogota, depending upon who you are. And they were like 14 to like 19 or 20, but they were all big guys. They were all really big guys. And their job was to offload all that stuff. And anyway, they were a prisoner. And so we treated them pretty well, man. I was, you know, they were they were innocents basically. They weren't like doing this. Fourteen or so of them on the boat that we busted with the two hundred twenty seven tons. But it wasn't like they were they were bad guys. When the Coast Guard yeah. got bad guys, we would go total pre seventeen ninety on them. As far as the way we would like, I mean, I, I I would I would use handcuff knots, bring it right into their crotch, bring it up over their shoulders, crisscross it, and tie a really really large square knot right at their larynx so if they tried to get out they'd be choking themselves all the time just so they wouldn't fucking move because you don't want those assholes moving i mean you know they're armed with machetes when you know when the bad guys they're always they always have fucking machetes and not just the machetes like you buy at the, the store machetes that are made out of retired leaf springs from cars the most amazing tempered steel on earth they can hit steel with those things and it's not going to hurt them. And it's really not going to dull them too badly either. You're fucked. That was the worst thing in the world when you're going on like a container boat, they're trying to find a stowaway or something. And the guy's already like, you know, hacked somebody up. That was rough. That was rough, but it was a cool time, man. I got to be a prize cruise skipper on a 46 foot double ended schooner from the Baltic. And I got, I, I spent four days with a crew of other guys and because I was the only, you know, you know, and I could sail. And so I got to take that boat. And then one time I talked to the wrong guy playing backgammon and I got to go over to his boat charter company. And this was a big deal because it was in the British Virgin islands and I was an American citizen and I got to run one of his boats 
I, wrote, I ran it for about four and a half months all during the, uh, the winter season because they were interested in what he was doing. And I avoided, I, man, every time they tried to you know, they call me back for a debrief, hey, I haven't had a chance to talk to him. It's been too busy. I haven't had a chance. <laughs> I was like, I was trying to avoid going back. Oh, man. So you were like kind of undercover a little bit. Yeah. I, yeah. I was a little bit undercover, but it was all, all I was supposed to do is keep my ear to the ground. It wasn't like I was doing anything, you know, it wasn't like spy work. Yeah. He had these two really big boats. He had these these Morgan Out Islander. These were big bulbous boats. It was like fifty one feet, and they were as big as condominiums. And he had gotten two of those, and they were relatively new at the time. He just gutted them, all the really fine furniture and everything that was in it. They just took it out, and he filled them with ballast bags. And he would pump those things full of ballast in these ballast bags. And every captain had well, there was a deal. It, the, they were. They, I was. I was just working for him. I wasn't like in on the deal. But the deal was, you spent five grand. You paid him five grand. He would help you find the boat you would like to charter from his business. You'd work for him for five years. He'd take care of all the maintenance on the boat, everything like that, yard periods and all that. He would crew the boat for you, and he would supply you with guests to take the boat out. And it was a pretty good deal. And at the end of that five years, you could sail off with that boat unless you wanted to sign on for more. Because after, I mean, a lot of guys had been there longer than five years because they were making a really good living. Anyway, everybody had to do two runs a year because there were were enough skippers. And one run was going north to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, or Charleston, one or the other, just depended. And the entire boat would be, you know, it, it would come in just limping because you were dumping all the water going in. And then it would be filled with 10 pack Winston's and 10 pack Salem cigarettes, just to the, to where it was now low in the water for all the volume of those, those cigarettes. Well, those cigarettes weren't violating any, the, the tax was paid on them leaving the United States. So the U.S. wasn't interested in it. They went to the Dominican Republic, to Santa Domingo, and they were offloaded there. He was paying like 17 cents a pack for them, maybe, maybe less. He was selling them for about 60 cents a pack, and then they were selling on the streets for a dollar a pack. It was just real good business. Everybody was making out pretty well on it. Uh, the other one trip went down island to specific places that the boats down there they had smaller smaller bags and they, you know, you had to juggle all this stuff. I mean, it was a nightmare for stability, but they would fill those with, with rum, all this rum. And then he had this one place and it, you know, Tortola is a tiny place and he had this one shed and he was just there in the shed and they had, he had some women working for him. He was, he employed a lot of people on the Island and they were filling these jars or these, these bottles with this rum. And then he had these counterfeit English tax stamps. And I've got to tell you, it warmed my heart to know that he was beating the English. That really helped me out. I felt good about it. Made it all right for you. You're like, yeah, fuck it, it's English. Yeah, yeah. Well, it really, I mean, it, he wasn't hurting me. He wasn't hurting the U.S. And that's when I told him, you know, I just, but they had invested a lot of money in me. So they, you know, kept, you know, calling me every once in a while. I got to do other fun stuff. But mostly I was AIDS navigation till I had to leave the area. <laughs> I was working in the North Gulf with Florida State, and this guy, Chris Koning, the guy who's in charge of all the, the grouper, you know, he's the one who's doing all the major studies on grouper. And there was somebody anchored in one of his restricted areas, and he got really pissed, you know, and I came up on him, and I, and I told him before, you know, I saw him in the galley when I was, I was on watch. I said, there's a guy, I think you got a line lineman out here. He's like, the hell you say? And he's, he's a salty son of a bitch. Grew up in Western Palm Beach County, which was just God's country, man. And he, you know, like my family ate anything that had the misfortune of wandering into the compound. His mom would cook anything he killed, him and his brother. It was just amazing. Anyway, so he's a hardcore salt and he's got a shoe phone, satellite phone with him. And he calls on his shoe phone. He goes, keep me in the lee. Just keep your stern up on him and keep an eye on him. And the guy's talking to me on the, on, on the, on the radio. So what are you all doing out here? Because we had an official looking boat. 
I said, I don't know. We're just going to take a little bit of water samples and things like that. Oh, okay. Good. Good. Cause there ain't been anything. There's been no fish around here. I haven't done anything with any fish around here. And then I, I dry, you know, stop the mic and, 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 and Dr. Chris goes, that son of a bitch. That's son of, he, 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 that his brother, his brother, I know that bastard. I know that son of a bitch. He, he wiped me out. He wiped me out. He took everybody from one of my sections. Anyway, about three hours pass and I'm just kind of like just hanging too, you know, because he doesn't want to do anything right now. Cause he doesn't want to give away what's going on. And I even went ahead and got a couple of science kids to, to drop a couple of water sample buoys so that they could pull <laughs> back up just so it looked like we were doing something. And I started seeing his smoke on the horizon and the coho cutter coho out of Carabell, Florida was just steaming at full a bell. I mean, that oh, nice. fast boat. Oh yeah. Yeah. It got around the stern of me and it came up around the bow jettisoned their red boat, which is a, it's, it's a hydro boat, right? So it can't do anything till it hits the water, but it was lit up and it's a, it's a, it's original rigid inflatable and it hit it capable of 60 miles an hour. <laughs> it hit the water and it leapt about 14 feet over the wake of the vessel and started just cutting hard to the starboard and just went right up to that boat. And those guys were loaded, man. They were completely in gear. They were like, they were going to be boarding, you know, they like in Northern Vietnam or something, you know, when it was all done, Coho came around and they had a Lieutenant as a skipper and it was a woman and it's Coast Guard. Coast Guard was the only experience I ever had in my life where everybody's on the same freaking page. They just that kind of organization. And uh, that's why it really, really pisses you off when you hear somebody just like that jackass that had all those weapons and everything like that. Yeah, so that's what the Coast Guard was like. And then after Coast Guard, I, I uh, you know, I started doing voice work and you know, I ended up in radio. I acted for a while. I wrote a whole lot of stuff for people. I got 20, 28 years or something like that out of radio. And then my fallback was the other only other skill I had that was really marketable is, is you know, sailing. So that was my fallback. And when shit hit the fan after uh, Clinton's deregulations, I just went ahead and renewed all my documents and went out as a captain. And then I got into Ayurveda. I was, oh, I went to massage school uh, when I was 18 in Miami. So I had that right off the bat. And that, that's, that served me. I'm still a licensed massage therapist now. From the, the Coast Guard to the, the voice acting, like what was that transition? Like, what were you doing that? I, it was just my personality, man. I, I, I was doing voice acting when I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. You know, that might be why my dad hated me. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was, because I was, you know, I was always narrating the whole freaking thing. Like, oh, it's just shut the fuck up, dude. <laughs> he raises the paddle again. <laughs> no, he never, he never used the paddle. He used a, he either used a belt or he slammed you, you know, and my mom, she just grabbed anything she could find. I mean, she went after my brother Kim with a wet paintbrush one day and just slapped the shit out of him. It was the most <laughs> hilarious thing I ever saw. <laughs> he's got, he's got this yellow paint all over him and she painted the house about uh, twice a year, you know, and she was always like either some sort of gross pastel pink with like yellow trim or, or this, this golden bullshit or this, Oh my God. And we had popcorn ceilings and they were failing all the time. And so you're breathing all that crap. And, it was horrible, man. It's just horrible. And I, I spent my time in a room, in my room, like either writing music or writing other stuff. Were, were you the only musician in your family, or did you have like a family of musicians? I don't know. My my brother, my older brother, was a pretty good sax player. Yeah, and, and my my uh, my younger brother was a really good sax player. Played okay. baritone sax. In fact, Seamus has got one. Did you still have that Barry? I do. Baritone. I do. Yeah. I I, I um I got it fixed and everything. So God bless you, man. Because yeah. that's an old that's an old horn, man. He bought that from a guy who was. We were backstage at a Benny Goodman concert in Miami Beach one time. And Keith was a little guy. I mean, he was probably like nine years old. And we're meeting Benny Goodman. And it was a big deal for me because he was a big band jazz guy. And, you know, that was the 40s. It was the 70s. And it, it, was, it was close enough. Keith, who never had any kind of compunction at all about anything. I mean, he's like the bravest guy I ever knew. He's the most generous guy I ever knew. He just shook Benny Goodman's hand and said, it's nice to meet you. 
you wouldn't happen to know anybody who's got a baritone sax for sale, would you? <laughs> and sure enough, my dad got a call a couple of days later and it was Benny Goodman. And he said, Hey, uh, tell your son that we have a sax. And my dad was like, well, I think I should know about it. No, no. I want to talk to him about it. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know how much they paid for it, but it was, it was, it was kind of ratty when he got it. It needed work, but it was a, it's a good sack and baritone sax. If you're playing baritone sax, you're going to get laid more than a drummer. Dude, they're so massive. I remember when uh, I saw Seamus's, uh, it was like just so much bigger because like my brother, was it alto sax my brother played? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, I mean, his sax was just tiny and uh, the baritone was just like, like almost the size of Seamus. It's, it's insane, like the size oh, of Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, there's a bass yeah. sax too that's like six and a half feet tall. And you got a contrabass also. Yeah, well, that one, you have to be on a, like a step, on a ladder, it's, right? Play it. Yeah, yeah it's so, something. So, so you did your your six years in the in the Coast Guard, and how did that transition into radio? Like, what what was your steps between the Coast Guard and radio? The whole time I was in the Coast Guard, after I got, I mean, even when I even when I was playing music, I wanted to be a, a military journalist. Okay, and, you know, sitting down to a piece of paper and taking a time test, I wasn't clerical enough. You know, I've been published in like a dozen magazines. I've you know <laughs> contributed to all these other books. I've ghostwritten for people. But I couldn't be a freaking journalist in the military because I couldn't write numbers fast or find the missing zero in among, among, among a bunch of nines. You grew up, I mean, you, you have dyslexia and, and yeah, I do. I didn't find a, the, the host of other learning disabilities as well, right? That get in the way. Yeah, well, I don't know about a host, but I've, I know I'm dyslexic. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I mean, you're just like, like I, just, I just meant the ADD kind of stuff. You, you think I'm ADD? I know I'm OCD. Yes. I got a very strange kind of OCD. I mean, I, I don't know. I you ever uh, had a peanut butter jelly sandwich by me. I, I know. Yes. I, I know myself. I know I came from you. Yeah. I know what, I know what parts of myself are my mother. And then like everything else is, is probably from you. And it's the fucked up part, right? Well, it's, it's fucked up, but it's creative. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> like the, 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 the stuff from my mom is more like uh, kind of annoying anxiety. Oh, the anxiety part. Because your mom, your mom was a brilliant mathematician. I mean, you know, she used somebody to crack a book and, and ace the statistics. Yeah. You know, I mean, she's that kind of she's got a really good head for math. Anyway, you were you were um you're really uh you were a very talented writer, but but because of dyslexia, you were having trouble getting like taking tests. That was a big that was a big challenge for me and uh like in teaching also, because like I, I couldn't pass the the essay test. I couldn't pass the writing test for the <laughs> for teaching. Well, that's because you put too much into it. That's the point. I mean, you, you know, when, when somebody asks you to write, you just grab a stance. And even if it's not something you believe in at that point, you just grab a stance and you just keep hammering that stance. And if you want to, you can take a really unpopular stance. And if you write it right, it's going to be just fine. It's going to be exciting for the person reading it, even if it enrages them. And you uh, are a good speller. And that is not something that dyslexics usually do well. Yeah. And, you know, and I can tell when I'm having a day where that, it's slipping in on me. I mean, I, I to, to get over it, I had to get a really good, I mean, I read when I was a kid. I read a lot of stuff. I was a real big fan of Mad Magazine. And I read, my dad always had all of these, these uh, popular mechanics and, you know, modern, just technical magazines around. And, and it was always fun to read. And I was always you know, interested in, in engines and working on cars and stuff. And it was embarrassing when I was writing because I, before you, I got all the, I got all the rhythm of it, but there were just times where it was just coming out wrong. And when I was reading too, it would just become texture. It would just vibrate, you know, it's just this, when it starts like. Would your dyslexia ever cause issues with like reading music or writing music or were you able, was it different enough? Ah, I memorized a lot. Okay. And I would play it really, really slow, really, really slow, really, really. Remember, Seamus, when I was trying to tell you how to do it, you know, just like really slow, long tones, everything like mm -hmm. that. Take it slow and then start building up on it. And that's what I that's what I did. I mean, I got off. And when I was doing acting, man, I was I mean, I'm not like Colbert photographic memory, but I was considered a short study because I would get off book so fast because I was terrified I was going to go up on a line. You know, so I got a lot of work out of it. I was like supporting myself in Nashville as an actor <laughs> and not doing video and not doing porn. I mean, I was, I was there. <laughs> and, and so, um, 
uh, you, you weren't able to become a military journalist, but it, it, had you gone to broadcasting school at that point or was it? Was it no, no, but I did take, I did take the entire journalism course. Cause you could, you could sign up and get any course, all course materials. And so I, I put in for every school. I said, I think it was called the Coast Guard because they didn't mind cross-qualifying people. If, if, if enough people that were supposed to get the school didn't get it, you could get the school. I just could never get a journalism school, but I got, you know, the, the first two books. In fact, I still have it. You know, I, boy, it served me really well when I got into radio. And that's why, it, it, you know, it bugs me when people want alternative facts, because if you look at science and you look at journalism, they're supposed to function pretty much the same way. You know, there's got to be, there's got to be a, you know, a repetitive proof, in fact, of what's going on with journalism, but it doesn't always happen. And then opinion, you know, really doesn't play into it, but you can get kind of cool with it, you know? And then I, I had a television show for a while in Fort Myers with uh, Harry Light, who produced it. I wrote the thing. Uh, it was a 30 minute show. So I write 45 minutes worth of copy. I would go in on a Tuesday morning. It aired on Thursday night. I would go in on a Tuesday morning. He'd have an outline. He'd give me on Monday afternoon. I'd rip through that. And then he'd edit it down to 30 minutes. And I'd give him 45. And it was, and sometimes because I did it in sections, the sections became perennial. I mean, they could be used anywhere. But then we, you know, the, the, the TV station, I was trying to be funny. The TV station wanted a disclaimer from us saying that, you know, the views and opinions. And I said, the views and opinions are ours. They are. Mm -hmm. Nobody really runs us. We don't, we don't have a front office. We don't have people in suits that make decisions for us. And that freaking television station took it like I was running them down. That's, uh, that sucks. Yeah. Because I, I said, you know, if you don't like something, call us, don't call them really leave them out of it. They got more important things to do. And I was being very sincere about it, but then he canceled this. I remember you had a you had a bit about uh, having good uh, good commercials, right? On that show, like like because like, like you, you wanted a primetime spot so you could have better commercials. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I that's what I kept telling everybody. So they, they, that's the other thing too. <laughs> we became a cult thing, and when I started that whole program, there were all these people that watched us, and they started hammering the station. Bring them on earlier. Bring them on earlier. <laughs> and it was that, that was funny. It became a problem. Yeah, well, it, it caused a problem in there because they were like, man, this is more money, more than it's worth. We can get it. We can get a preacher on there. We can just get a preacher. <laughs> you you kind of helped uh, discover Diamond Dallas Page on that show, right? As part of that? And then, you know, nobody had to discover him. He's like, he was like an iceberg. You don't discover an iceberg. It's there. <laughs> you know, I mean, that guy, that guy was, he wasn't ripped though. He was trim. He was tall and trim. You know, he wasn't that physical. And he was, a, he was, he was managing a bar. And he would fall in love with bar girls and he'd get his heart broken. And it happened all the time. And it was this gal from Canada who's just gorgeous. And she, you know, he and she just, she put him on the rocks, man. I mean, he got so bummed out when she decided that she wasn't going to be, you know, hanging around anymore and stuff. And I drove up and I, and I came up on my Sturgis, you know, and he's, he's out, he was outside. He had a 59 pink Cadillac convertible. And he was driving that around and stuff. And he was, you know, it was, a, it was a very happening time, man. It was the eighties and it was just the sluttiest time on earth. And anyway, I roll up on him and I was getting ready to go to yoga class. And uh, I said, buddy, here's what I want to tell you. Don't go for bar girls. I want you to go to the health food store with me and I'll, I'll point it out. And you need a girl in a cable knit sweater with a long skirt and Birkenstocks. That's going to be good for you. You're going to enjoy it. And I said, and the other thing is, man, you ought to just come to yoga with me because those girls are in yoga. And he was like, yeah, I'll go to yoga. J.E. Smith is a sportscaster, a big boxing guy who lives in Las Vegas. He was my sportscaster on the radio station I was managing, WKZY. And it was, a, it, it was really the, the beginnings of my hatred for Trump at WKZY because the only national way to get news in those days was USA Today. And every day they're so hungry for content that anything that, that Trump was trying to shove down somebody's throat, they were talking about. What, what year was this? I don't know, 80, 84. 80, it was 80s, yeah. And so he was actually becoming the show prep for every one of the jocks on my radio station. Now our listeners were 60s to like death. 
They had nothing in common. They had no interest in this piece of shit. They had not. And I I kept telling those guys, I don't want to hear about him again. I don't want to. He has no pertinence. Is there anything in Fort Myers that calls attention to anything that that guy's about? No, he's not relatable to our audience. I don't want to hear about it. And I kept hearing about it. I, my listeners, if, you know, if we were doing a thing somewhere, they would roll up and they roll up in really big cars, really big, expensive cars, because they were retirees and stuff. And you'd open the trunk and they had deep sea gear. They had backwater gear. They had ski uh, rifles. They had bocce balls. Those guys, all they did was just recreate. They had the greatest lives going on. And sometimes they'd invite me. And it was always like getting schooled, man, because these guys were old guys and they had done it all. And they were like World War II, before World War II, Korea. They were older than that even. Some of those guys were probably just like, you know, from the 30s on up. Man, oh man. I mean, they were badasses. And there were hundreds of them. I mean, we were pretty popular in that group. And they were still cruising. I mean, there were single guys and they were still cruising it. It was amazing. But anyway, Smitty knew everybody. Smitty could get Muhammad Ali on the phone and go, Smitty, it's good to talk to you. You know, he was that kind of guy. And he had the best interviews in the state of Florida. He knew everybody. He knew Lou Albano. And Lou Albano, Captain Lou, was like everybody's favorite granddad. He was the sweetest man. But he was a big time wrestler and he was in a Chris uh, and a Cindy Lauper video. And that affected Paige. Um, Smokey Genta was in the in the room with him and, and they were talking about how you know he should he should do the wrestler thing because you know, look, look at look at all the broad the breadth of what can happen if you're a wrestler. Well, Smitty Smitty knew Paige pretty well, and he just told Captain Lou that there's this kid he wants to get into into wrestling. So Lou dropped what he was doing and he came on and he talked to, to, to Paige. And, and that was like really super instrumental for, for Paige. That's what that, you know, making that dream come true because all those guys, they're like country Western guys. They're like, they have a dream. And, and you said, you said that they came on, this was on party news network on party news network. He was plugging his, his, uh, his bar. Right. Yeah. Attention ladies of the eighties. You know, I didn't do any voice work. Nor, Norma Jean Cafe, right? Norma Jean's Cafe, yeah, Norma Jean's, and, and their logo was uh, was was an image of uh, Marilyn Monroe, and it was it was a big ass barn, man. It was a huge, huge club, and they they were packing like, if you can get two nights a week out of a bar, you're good. They were getting like four nights a week out of it. I oh, mean, wow. four big nights and then a couple small nights. That's cool. Yeah, it's, it's balls to the walls, you know, and, but there wasn't anything else to do in that town. You were uh, you're talking about uh, Lou, Lou Albano and um, and Paige getting together. Yeah, well, that well Lou Lou was the guy who introduced him around, and, and Paige had to prove himself himself. But Paige ended up on the Tonight Show. I mean, the guy, you know, I mean, he did it all right. He's he was gregarious in the right way. He's he's a very nice guy. He's a really nice guy, and he's got a genuine concern for people. I mean, you, when you look at all the people, all the success stories from uh, from uh, DDP Yoga. You know, which started out as yoga for regular guys. I watch TV and everyone, you know, just every once in a while, I, I point to somebody and go, Hey, Denise, I know that guy. <laughs> and uh, she knew, she knew Paige. She met Paige because she was living down there. She was a yoga instructor down there. And his infomercial came on. And we, we watched the infomercial and we were howling because it's all yoga. It's just, this ain't your mama's yoga. It's all yoga. He just changed the names for it. You know, it's it's not it's not warrior. It's road warrior. You yeah, know, just give it a different flavor. He's got that dynamic resistance thing uh, with it as well. Well, he does now, but he didn't start out with dynamic resistance. Okay, you know, I mean, that he started out with pure yoga because he was he he saved his own ass because he had such a bad injury with, with wrestling. It's not scripted per se, but if you come at somebody. They got to know how to take you over so you land. And somebody fumbled when he came off the uh, off the rope, and it just crushed his ass. And it and he, you know, he had he had disc issues, right? He had disc From issues. That. He had all kinds of problems. He had compressions, and he was he was married to this really hot hot woman. I never met her personally, but she was hot. She was getting ready to go, and he told me this. 
man, she's getting ready. She's getting ready to go to this, this, you know, this, this sports competition for the stars thing. And, and she's training, you know, she's training hard and she'd come up to my room and, and up to the room and she'd be sweating and, and she, you know, I'm going to run through the shower and then I'm going to go, I'm going to go over the pool and I'm going to do my laps. And I couldn't do anything, man. I mean, she was so hot and she was so sweaty and she was, you know, he just couldn't be with his wife. He goes, dude, I rolled out of bed and I got on the floor and I went down the steps on my ass and it was a long staircase that had a crook in it. And I went down there and I just started camping out on the couch and laying on the floor and doing yoga. And then I got a little more strong and then I started doing Pilates and I did a little more strong. And I got a little more strong and then he got really strong and he got two belts that year. You know, <laughs> he came yeah. back, you know, so his success story is all about his own survival. Yeah. And that's pretty much the way the guy always was. I mean, he was, he was making money out of thin air when he was working as a bar manager. That place didn't have a parish chance in hell, but it, with him managing it could have been in any, any city in the, in the country because of how he managed it had great radio had great promotions he understood his clientele and nobody else could really compete with him and also there wasn't much room for anybody else especially with how much he was hoarding the public it was pretty good and he was a major player yeah yeah he's a good guy though yeah definitely he's a, i've always i've always enjoyed hanging out with him and been together he's always liked you yeah huh. <laughs> but you got his you got his discs you know i do, it, I do. It, it's like i told you when you're young you know eight minute apps only takes eight minutes <laughs> you know? yeah yeah that, that fell on deaf ears yeah but don't ponder it just do it you guys remember the the, the bit i think it was from uh uh there's something about mary seven yeah. seven minute apps <laughs> seven, yeah, yeah. oh yeah and then right. if it doesn't work we give you the extra minute for free yeah. Yeah. What about six minute abs? No, that's 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 ridiculous. Who'd work yeah. out for six minutes? <laughs> I love that guy too. The the guy that was doing that. Oh my god, he's so funny. So um, it's funny that that story that you told earlier about about you wanting like you telling him to go to yoga and he didn't. Uh, yeah, he was he wasn't about it. That kind of like that kind of illustrates like how 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 off put he was from that stuff before he had his injury and then afterwards he's all about it now became the answer also he was he was with a really muscular physically uh you know trained woman who you know was hammering him too yeah. yoga will help you yoga will help you yeah you know and well, then it, you know and then he um you know he's able to take out all the stuff that provided resistance for him he didn't take out a bit of it what he did is he made it wrestler and by making it wrestler he appealed to his entire yeah that's what i'm saying yeah, yeah just rebra- he rebranded it. Yeah, a lot a lot of people that wouldn't like do the the asana side of yoga like will they'll they'll do DDP yoga. Yeah, they do and that's the beauty of it, man. That is the absolute beauty of it. Cuz if you look at, at the first guy who did it, the guy that the very first guy was uh what's the man's name? It's Albert. Arthur. 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 There, there you go. go. Arthur. It's Arthur. Arthur. Arthur was uh in the in uh I think uh in Desert Storm. He's a jumper. And he was, you know, he he had a lot of missions. And he got just trashed with his knees and everything like that. And he got on the medications. You know, the VA at that time was, they're not so much like this now. They don't give away, you know, medications for pain management as frivolously as they used to. He ended up, man, he's about five, what, about 5'8"? He might be about 5'8". And he was close to 300 pounds. And he had to walk with crutches. And he had young kids. And he, his son is when he first started doing this, documented the whole thing. He, he taped it every time the guy was doing it. And you see all the challenges he had. I mean, his balance, everything was just terrible. He was on all kinds of medications. But as he got better at it, he got healthier and he got more muscular and more, you know, more toned. He started, his doctor started taking him off all these various medications until he got pure. And now he teaches DD, he's certified in DDP style yoga, but I'm sure by now he's probably certified by everybody, you know, cause he is, he's like, he's an icon. It's, you know? it's uh, Josh, like, like there's a, there's a video online with this, like we could watch later, but this, you know, this guy, he goes from this, like at, at the end of the video, he, um, you see this kind of like long distance and then you see him like running towards the camera 
And he's like, he's sprinting like, like really yeah, fast. Yeah, man. I mean, talk about inspiration. Yeah. That's very gnarly. He's, you look at his, his before and after people and, and it's, everybody's in this progression and they all, they all do their own taping and everything like that. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous way to go about it. And you see these guys that are just, they're hopelessly couch potato. They got nothing to do. And, <laughs> and they start doing this and they end up being ripped, you know? And they end up being happy and end up with relationships because a whole lot of stuff changes when you start doing something every time, every day, yeah. any kind of rhythm is going to give you confidence. Yeah. So, any, any type of betterment. I mean, that's why I, I know Seamus has had uh, some, some issues and I always tell him like, just do the first step, just do that, take that first step. And then like, it might not be that much, but like, it's that first step. Yeah. Well, that's my, been my, my philosophy all the time. I mean, and, you know, that's what I used to tell guys in the Coast Guard. How are you doing? I'm living like an alcoholic. What do you mean? I just take it one minute at a time, man. Because <laughs> you don't know what's going on. And, and really, in my experience, the most spiritually developed people I know are recovered and recovering. Mm-hmm. You know, they just they just they just get a lot more than the average person. It's a lot of life experience to go through. To well, it's a lot, that. it's a lot of hell to go through, man, because when you're addicted. There's nothing else. There is yeah. nothing else. And it, it, it's not fun anymore. That's the that, that spiritual and social definition of debauchery is to be doing something that no longer serves you pleasure yeah. and that you're slave to it. Yeah. Seems like a good segue to uh, to kind of wrap this up. And- Josh, there's this uh there's this this Indian guru his name's Sadguru. When when uh, when he's in street clothes, he looks just like my dad, just a little darker. <laughs> Sadguru. It's, it's so hilarious. Is that the I picture you sent me? Guy. I think you sent me a picture. And yeah. Was like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just as a joke, I posted it on my Facebook and said Kevin O'Dunn. And then uh, <laughs> one of um uh, uh Kim's old old girlfriends is uh, she's friends with me. She's like, oh, he looks so good. I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was that Maureen? She's she's very sweet. Like whoever she is, she's very Super sweet. Super sweet. Maureen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 she is just solid gold, that girl. <laughs> I mean, I bet everybody he went out with was solid gold. He just yeah. was such a prick that, you know, they, <laughs> oh my God, this guy, this guy, he, all he had to do was apply just a little bit of codependency with a little bit of dependency with a little bit of just tiny little bit of like, you know, aloof. And then he was dating this girl who was just about to make partner in Miami. And she was just the most, she was smart. She was beautiful, had a killer sense of the ridiculous really good sense of humor and within four weeks of hanging out with my brother he had her doing an open mic night at the cheetah three in lauderdale like all of her credibility was in a pile with her clothes on the end of the stage you, you mean you mean the amateur night amateur, amateur night at the strip night, club yeah. yeah 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 at the strip club and not not at any strip club at the cheetah the three cheetah, yeah. at the cheetah <laughs> three and the cheetah three in like it's like the third best one this is your older brother, right? My older brother, my late older yeah. brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I made about 250 bucks getting like $22 a page just using his systems, helping this guy, you know, back in the old days when they were just getting into making websites. And I was writing under the name Dr. Raman Shank. <laughs> From the Feline University of Carnal Knowledge. Fuck. I just took his playbook about how to like get dropped by your girlfriend, about how to take a different route home, and then around your family, just start dropping stuff. Just be the clumsiest son of a bitch on the earth. And the reason for this wasn't because he was being kind about trying to get her to break up with him. He didn't want to threaten the potential of banging any of her girlfriends for sympathy. That's, <laughs> so, that's the whole thing he was working on. He, he had to get her to break up with him. Yeah. And he would just work it. Oh, yeah. Because then he'd be just, he'd be heartbroken. And then he would enlist my mom. My God. Oh, my God. He'd be out on a date. And like, I, I met him one time over this place, Ricky's and, you know, wings and beer. And uh, yeah, the, 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 um, the King of Kong. Uh, guy owns that place. Oh no shit! Yeah. Oh, yeah. Remember, remember that in the thing? Yeah, one of the yeah. finest bars. I mean, what a what an old school bar. 
Uh, Broward County has this thing where you can be open and you just got to close for a half hour. So they would close for a half hour between like 5.30 in the morning to 7, just depend upon how it was happening because they were right across the street from the uh, Hollywood PD. And then they were the whole hospital ghetto for Broward County, South Broward County is right there. And so it was all nurses and cops. And so you had the most insane of anybody who's like employed, you know, under contract. I mean, it's a seriously crazy people. <laughs> what a great bar. Oh my God. What a great bar. And they were the first one to, to serve real chicken wings in, yeah. uh, in the state. Man, oh man. But anyway, be in there and his beeper go off. Cause he was like, you know, trying to get away. Cause he had a second date or something like, and he'd look at it. And my brother, Keith, one time, my brother, Keith's seven years younger than him. I mean, he was a chief, but he just, he was lightning fast. Keith was light, the most, I mean, he was the quickest guy. I would never want to take a hit from him because he was just so fast. And he snatched it out of his hand. He goes, oh, it's not the station. It's mom. <laughs> 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 you know, whole place. Yeah. Have you guys ever done edibles? Yes. Uh, I have not. Never really done much uh, drugs at all, really. I have a nerd rope in my in my nightstand what's it's a nerd THC. it's a type of candy nerds oh little nerds yeah cool and it's it's on like a it's on a, a gummy candy rope and it's got pot in it that's a beautiful thing man <laughs> i just my take a little bird. nibble every once in a while oh so you're, so you're microdosing how many milligrams is that it's it's um the whole thing i think has like a hundred to a thousand i think it's a thousand milligrams in the whole strip so you got to be careful that's a lot yeah. So you don't you don't, you don't eat you don't eat the whole thing. It's it's kind of a, it's a weird like edibles are a little bit weird because like they're they're really high high dosage like like you know like there there might be a, like ten servings in a gummy bear you know <laughs> like, like it's like not it's not it's not really it's it doesn't it's it's not the same as a as candy because like ten ten milligrams is like a normal dose right for. Uh, for an yeah. edible, like that's where yeah, and, I, and I'm, 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 I'm super, I'm super sensitive to that. So like, I'm, I'm trying to hit maybe two to five. Uh, I was just going to ask because uh, when my late brother was undergoing all of his strife with uh, melanoma, and he was in all these experimental programs, and he kept getting in the group, kept getting in the group, and Marinol had just come out, and that was to help them manage their problems with uh, being under, you know, on the chemicals. He came over one time when he was, you know, like in an upswing over to, to Fort Myers. And we went to this place that was uh, down right on the way to the beach. It was called El Gallo, an Italian restaurant by these sisters from Central America. Okay. And it was just fabulous, man. Oh, my God. It was just fabulous. And uh, when he came, he, I said, listen, man, we'll, we'll have... Maureen will drive, you and I will do some Marinol, and then we're going to go in there and just eat our brains out. Does that sound good? He goes, oh, that sounds good. That sounds real good. About two hours before we left, uh, we got down there about two o'clock. It hadn't hit me. Hadn't hit me at all. Hadn't hit me. Hadn't hit me at all. So I'm having this big old thing, a big seafood thing, you know, with, the, with, the, with the, everything, with the noodles and just every kind of seafood. So the whole thing was a bust for me. Didn't happen. He, he was lit. He was just <laughs> totally lit having a great afternoon and saying stupid stuff. And it was just hilarious. And he was real mellow too, because he wasn't normally a mellow guy. Midnight, I had to go, uh, I covered for a guy over at, uh, at 96 K-Rock. And I, I, I went in at midnight and uh, I was playing a CD six pack of, of the police. And it hit, it was like, it, it was like this, Seamus. <laughs> and it came over me like somebody dropped a pizza dough the size of a car on me. And I was so bored. <laughs> and I wished I could listen to the radio, but I was the radio. <laughs> oh man. It's 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 interesting. Like it um like the edibles, I, I don't generally like the to smoke because like it, it doesn't doesn't do much for me, but like the edibles, the, the way it comes on, it's like uh, it's different. It's it, it it's kind of like things get brighter. That's the experience I have with it. That's good though. And it's better, it's better that way too, because you're not really damaging your lungs or anything. Yeah. Anyway, so getting back to the uh, edibles. No, that was, I just wanted to share that story because I haven't had an edible sh uh, story yet. I haven't done oh. it. I just really love it when I'm watching TV or something and one of the characters goes, uh, 
Hey, man, did you see that? What? Oh, I'm sorry. I took some edibles out 40 minutes ago. I really <laughs> you, you, you can have my nerd, nerd rope if you want. No, no, I'm cool. I'm cool. Okay. Yeah. I've had it for like six months. I haven't, I haven't, I've touched it once. Dude, so. you know, I got, when I got my uh, card, I went out and I got some stuff. And uh, my card's, what, two months old? I haven't gotten, yeah. near, I haven't gotten near getting, you know, even denting it. <laughs> Because I would probably do like the the lollipops. I know the lollipops are really popular. The the THC lollipops, those are supposed to be jamming. That must be cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that kind of delivery is good because then you can dose people and they don't really know it. You know, it's yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, Dad, we, we appreciate you coming on. It's been oh it's man, been I appreciate it. a lot of fun. Yeah, we we yeah. definitely keep bringing you on. You're you're awesome. I forget how cool you are, Kevin. You're really <laughs> one of the coolest people. <laughs> oh man, thanks, yeah. man. Oh. Yeah, and we barely like touch the surface because there's. There's, I mean, there's just so much more. Like, I, I know, like, I, I want to talk to you more about uh, the Ayurveda thing. Ayurveda, Ayurveda, yeah, yeah, like that. Uh, I know between that and like the the being the massage therapist, like you said, and uh, I know even like doing the research vessels, like that stuff's really cool as well. Yeah, yeah. If you guys really wanted to get deep, though, I mean, Seamus has a practitioner's education. Mm-hmm. Seamus understands everything about Ayurveda. Mm-hmm. You know. Josh doesn't like hearing me talk about knowledge stuff. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't like it. No, you know, you know what, you know what impresses me about you guys. You guys are uh, two of like five people that the state of Florida ran out of math for, and they had to throw you at a college. <laughs> <laughs> I, I used to get, you know, my but my buddy Jeff, he homeschooled his kids, and I didn't know what the long con was about him because he's not he's he's not like a, a racist or anything like that. He's not got any of these religious phobias or anything like that, you know. So I'm wondering why why is he homeschooling these kids? You know, they, it's just, what, what's the deal? They got out of they finished when they were about twelve years old. Mm-hmm. The state of Florida was still responsible for them. He paid not a dollar for their college educations. And that's the way it plays. That's basically what, what he did. He got free college for his kids just by getting through the, the basics yeah. himself. And you know, one of them is a pharmacist for crying out loud. Yeah, that's that's one of the best like homeschool stories that I've heard. Like, I, I've known other homeschool people that, are, that don't make it out as well. Well, because they were failed when they were being homeschooled. Well, they, they were, you know, they, yeah, they're either they're either just dumb or weird. Well, they usually have like an arrested development to some extent where they just yeah. don't get that. You have to be bullied a little bit. I, I think like like everyone needs to be bullied to some extent. And oh no, I, I want to protest that because I got bullied by my parents, man. Your parents got, are different yeah. than yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, yeah. That's yeah, a that's different like type a, of drama. <laughs> they were no, but they were criminals. They would have freaking gone to jail, dude. They would have gone to jail, <laughs> and I would have been there to testify. God damn! I mean, you know, my cousin, my cousin Mike had a twenty-two caliber uh, rifle. I one time I was going to try to smuggle it home. And I was going to shoot my parents. Oh Jesus. wow! Yeah, yeah. And I was working at a hardware store, and I knew I could steal twenty-two caliber longs. I could because <laughs> I couldn't buy them. I would just leave the five dollars and take the case. <laughs> you, long you, wouldn't, you wouldn't even steal them. You just you'd pay well, for them because I pay for them. Yeah, but principle. I, yeah. No, really. I told that. I told that to Denise one, you know, today. I mean, it was today. I told her. That's 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 the first time I heard that too. Yeah. Uh, well, she she said um, she would she would always be afraid for her father because her father used to drink and drive. I was just so afraid. And I said, you know, I I was homicidal. <laughs> I would have taken out the whole family had I had the means. Jesus. Yeah, I was fucked up. I mean, that's I that's why I understand these kids that go off. Yeah, no, I, I do too. I like feel like most people that have had any issue with mental health, like it's it's really easy to see how anybody can be conditioned to do anything. You know what I mean? Yeah, but, yeah. You, you know, the people you're most supposed to trust, and you can't. Yeah, you're already kind of behind the eight ball because you're you know you don't read real well. Your your t- teachers are constantly telling your parents that you're ne'er do well because you're really smart and you have good language, but look at the tests. It's like fuck you. If I hear it, I own it, and that's why you know when I was when I was learning lines, I would just say all the lines into a recorder, and I would just listen to them and go over them and go over them, and I had them, you know. And the same thing with music. I didn't, you know. After a while, your music, your your instruments, a further extension of your own voice, you know. When you mm-hmm. finally get to know it, and so 
all I had to do was like hear it a few times and I knew exactly where to go. And then if I wanted to not go there, I could go other places. I was playing in high register for a whole parade one time. And the guys from the Air Force Band of the East was at this, it was another time we crossed paths with them at a parade. And I was saying, man, who was that baritone, man? It was a baritone. I could hear him all the way up here. You could never hear a baritone that far up, but a tuba with the size of the bore of the thing, you know, it just got out there. Couldn't hear it close, but you could sure hear it far away. <laughs> anyway, and that was it's a weird moment right there. <laughs> the, the, the homicide part? Uh, nah. Well, yeah, no. I mean, it's just, you know, you end up saying stuff like that just to cleanse yourself, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I get it. Because I, I do every once in a while, man, just go, oh, you know, it comes up. You don't, you know, you don't see it much, but when it, when I do let it go, man, I let it go. You know, uh, before I leave, I'll just give you another one to, de- to give my mother definition. All right. All right. Um, my dad died. I came to, I came back to South Florida to kind of help out with the business and then go to broadcasting school. I was working at the high school I graduated from as a bus driver and doing maintenance. Every chance my mom got, she would tell my wife what a piece of shit I was my mother. and project all of my brother's bastardly habits with women on me and made her feel terribly insecure and undermined our entire relationship. Fast advanced to where I'm working my first job and radio and she and my brother, after my dad passed, came over in his motorhome and they stayed at a place over on Fort Myers beach and invited the Flaherty's over. I couldn't be there cause I was working. Maureen was not there either cause she was working, but the Flaherty's were there and she ripped me in front of my father-in-law and <laughs> told him what a piece of shit I was. Wow. And this is a guy that, you know, I painted his fucking house I helped him move around. I I I changed the oil in his freaking car, changed his spark plug. I mean, I I was just treating him like he was a dad, and he had no respect for me, none whatsoever. And I had my mom to thank for it. So you know, my contempt for her is earned. And I you know, I told Denise, I said I, I had no remorse at all when she passed. I was just pissed that I had to take care of her shit because we're talking about like we got a lot of shit. We need to get rid of a lot of shit. We don't want the kids to have to deal with shit. And I'm like, yeah, but some of it they need to know about. Like, you know, she's she went through some terrible shit, and her her kids need to know she went through the shit. I mean, it should, you don't want them to find out about it reading a journal. Yeah. And really, by then, who's going to read? Nobody's going to read anymore. <laughs> we're going to have chips. Yeah. I'll say we're going to have these implants in our heads. Well, it'll be like the, the was it the Matrix? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I want to thank you guys. I mean, this yeah. is, this is, no, really thank cool. you. Thank you all for listening. If you would like to support the WWSD podcast, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash WWSD underscore podcast. Make sure you like, and subscribe on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you know, clarinets like terrible rotten freaking instrument unless somebody knows how to play if somebody knows how to play it it's a lovely instrument man but that's why i can never stand going to anybody's concerts for their little kids because the clarinets were always <laughs> terrible intonation nobody listened and the directors just let it go it's like fuck this um here in the bag boo <laughs> <laughs> you, you call that music <laughs> Oh no, I would just, I would just sit. I mean, it was totally torture, you know? I mean, I'll go to a, I'll go to a stupid dance recital and listen to the thunder of the herd when they're dancing around, but it's like the ballet. If you're going to the ballet, you never sit close. You never sit close. It sounds like people dropping barrels on the stage. You know, you think, Oh, it's so graceful. It's horrible.